So where we are currently in Matthew chapter 14, the flow of the text, Jesus has gotten word at the opening of the chapter that his cousin, a friend, John the Baptist, has been executed by a tyrant, an evil man, a wicked man, an immoral man, Herod. Word gets to Jesus. He immediately takes the disciples. They go out into the wilderness. And we're told that multitudes of people from all of the surrounding cities there around the Galilee, keep in mind at this time, estimates place the population and this very small geographic footprint somewhere between two to three million people. There's a lot of people packed into the Galilee region. All of these different towns surrounding this little body of water. And then the outlying region, you know, because of the, 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 the Jordan River Valley extending south and, and the, the fertileness of, of, of just the soil around the sea, it made for great agriculture, made for farming. There was a, an extensive, large population in this area. And so Jesus catches this word He's grieved, his heart is moved, no question about it, the humanity of Jesus. He goes out to get away, but the multitudes, they see him leaving, they follow. We're told, we're giving the context that the multitude that had gathered was 5,000 men. In our context, think of it more of like 5,000 households. It was just the men counted, but then you also had uh, the women, the wives, you had the children. I mean, this was quite a mass of people that had gathered in the middle of nowhere with this anticipation of Jesus acting. That maybe the time had finally come where Jesus would lead the revolution against Rome they all had deeply longed for. But Jesus does something different. He does something that defies their expectations. In addition to, according to the the compilation of all four gospel narratives, in addition to preaching, taking the opportunity with the crowd to articulate to them the kingdom. Jesus, we're also told, healed many that were sick. He preaches and he performs this practical ministry. The disciples come, it's evening, and they're like, it's, it's time to eat. We don't have enough food. Jesus is like, well, feed them. And they're like, oh, well, we only have five loaves and two fish, which they didn't actually have. They stole from a little kid. And in the process of it, Jesus commands them to be separated into groups. He organizes them, and he lifts his eyes to heaven. He blesses, and then he begins to break and distribute what was absolutely 100% inadequate resources. I mean, this was, as mentioned last Sunday, a Lunchable. And yet Jesus took a Lunchable, he peeled the lid, he took the crackers and and the fish, and he fed. He started distributing to the people. Not only were the, were, were the people provided a free lunch, but they ate until they were filled. First helping, second helpings, third helping. So much that at the end of this experience, Jesus tells the disciples who were doing the distributing, these 12 men that had become his inner circle, he instructs them to go out and to collect the leftovers. Fascinating, there were 12 baskets God provided. It's an amazing scene. Now, we're told, again, not in Matthew's gospel, but in another place, I believe Mark, that in reaction to this incredible miracle, that the multitudes are now more determined than ever to take Jesus, even if it be by force, and make him their king. And this is a dicey moment in the ministry of Jesus. 
The disciples, no doubt, were, were gung-ho for the endeavor. The people were galvanized. This was the moment. I mean, things could have quickly spiraled out of control, and yet Jesus, he, he, he moves into action, sensing what's going on, getting the vibe, feeling what, what's, what's taking place, knowing the danger in it. He tells his disciples, get into a boat and go to the other side, and we're told that Jesus disperses the crowd. Let's dive into the text. Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitude away. And the language that's used here not only denotes urgency, but strength, force. The disciples are not wanting to leave. I mean, they sense what's happening. They want to be a part of it. This is the moment they've been waiting for as well. But Jesus, we're told, he made his disciples get into the boat. They're reluctant. He forces them into the boat. He's like, guys, go to the other side. This isn't up for debate. Go. I'm going to hang back. I'll take care of the multitudes. I'll send them away. Now, wouldn't you have loved to know how Jesus accomplished this particular task? We have no idea. We're not even told how he accomplished it. He just said, you guys go before me. I'll catch up. I'm going to send the multitudes away. And so this is what takes place. Now at this point, they're sailing probably from the area of Bethsaida to the area of the Gazarenes, or, or even close to Capernaum, his headquarters. We're told, and when he had sent the multitude away, verse 23, that Jesus went up on a mountain by himself to pray. You know, you have to kind of wonder, what was it in particular that Jesus was praying about? On one end, you can, you can reckon that he was spending time with his father, that he was taking his grief, the grief that he had experienced, just, again, the humanity of Jesus, the loss of John. You know, don't detach yourself from, from the humanity of the Lord. You know, so often it's easy for us, because Jesus performs the miraculous, that Jesus performs the supernatural, we detach him from the natural. Jesus, knowing he would raise Lazarus from the dead, wept, gripped with emotion. We're told, we're given all kinds of emotive language about Jesus that he would look at the, the multitudes he, and he had compassion. He had their pain and his heart. He was, he was gripped. What was he praying about? Was he taking his own grief to his heavenly father? the loss of a friend, the loss of John? Was he, was he going to the Father to rest? I mean, Jesus' schedule had been jammed full. We're not given the indication that Jesus ate in the feeding of the 5,000. Again, there weren't 13 baskets of leftovers. There was only 12. Was Jesus snacking as he was cooking? Maybe. Maybe. But was he going to his heavenly father in prayer to be fed spiritually? You know, when you look at the life of Jesus, one thing that is inescapable about him is that he was a man of many things. But you can build the argument, most notably, a man of prayer. That Jesus is constantly taking the moment, the opportunity, to get away to a place that was quiet, to spend with his father to have communion with his Father, to share his thoughts with his Father, to sit quietly and listen. The solitude. 
And, and I bring that up because if, if prayer was something important for Jesus, how much more important should it be for you and I to take the opportunity? When we're, when we're filled with grief, where should we go? Well, we should get on our knees before Jesus, before the Lord. We should cast our cares on him, for he cares for us. And our grief, where should you go? A shriek or the Lord? Now, not to say that psychiatry doesn't have a place or a role, but the, the prayer. And when we're hungry and we feel empty and we're worn out and we're burnt out and we're at the end of, where should we go? We should get on our knees before Jesus. We should pray. We should seek solitude. We should spend time with our Heavenly Father. If it's important for Jesus, was he praying, interceding for the disciples? Jesus knew what was up ahead. And, and on multiple occasions, he does his best to brief them on it, you know, to make sure they're all in the loop. On three occasions, Jesus will say, hey, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to get betrayed and executed. But don't worry, three days later, I'll rise from the dead. And they're like, uh-huh, 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 right over their heads. But Jesus knew what was up ahead. He knew what, how it would impact them. He knew how it would land. Is he praying for his friends? We should pray for our friends. Jesus sends the disciples, puts them in a boat, forces them to set sail. They're, they're working their way across the sea. He disperses the multitude, and he gets alone. A little quietness up on a mountain to pray. Now, when evening came, Jesus alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. I, I've noted this before, but it bears repeating, just in case you're new, the Sea of Galilee is not a very large body of water, roughly seven miles by 14 and a half miles. You can stand on the shore there in Capernaum today, and you can see the whole thing. North, south, east, west, you can see the whole body of water. And, and what makes the Sea of Galilee, very unique, is really two components to it. The body of water on planet Earth, lowest, the furthest below sea level, is the Dead Sea. Interestingly, the second body of water, number two in that list, is the Sea of Galilee. It is very, it's I think 600 and something feet below sea level. And not only is it below sea level, uh, it's surrounded by mountains. What, what happens is that the Sea of Galilee is very susceptible to immediate and violent storms. You can visit it today, and you will see, you will note, you can witness these particular storms, the hot air, the, the cold air rushing off the mountains, coming down into the water. It, it starts to churn it up. I mean, storms can happen in a blink of an eye. They can happen quickly. Now, Jesus is on a mountain. He has a vantage point. He is aware where his disciples are. He knows they're in the middle, and he sees the storm roll in, and it's evening, it's dark, and these disciples are in the middle of this, of this storm, the sudden storm. We're told that they're being tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. So at this point, they're trying to make their way, but the wind's contrary, so they've had to drop the sail, meaning that they are all rowing frantically to get themselves across. Now, about half of these guys, most of them grew up around, around Galilee. They're familiar with the way that the body of water operated. Most of these guys made a living fishing. 
the Sea of Galilee. So nothing about the suddenness, the immediacy of the storm catches them necessarily off guard because they were aware. I'm sure these guys had gone through a fair share of storms themselves, but this one seems to be a bit unique. The wind is contrary. They drop the sail. They know what they're doing. They are rowing. They are paddling. They are frantic. They are working hard. They realize the diciness of, of, of the situation. Now, the clouds roll in. The stars are, are blacked out. You can't see the moon. Again, it's a bit uh, disorienting. It's dark. It's darkness. And you can, you can sense the rain is probably coming down vertically. It's hitting them in the face. They're soaking wet. They're tired. They're exhausted. And they're a bit freaked out. The crashes of thunder and lightning over the horizon. I mean, this is quite a storm they find themselves in the middle in and we're told verse 25 as all of that's happening and again Jesus has been praying up on the mountain but we're told that in the fourth watch so that places us in a time frame somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. this is before daybreak the fourth watch of the night Jesus went to them Walking on the sea. Jesus went to them. Now, why did Jesus wait so long? <laughs> it's the fourth watch. Now, he's given them an instruction. They've been obedient. They got in the boat. They're making their way across. They're struggling and striving and working and sweating and uh, freaked out and worried and concerned. And Jesus has been watching this. He's been looking down. He's been seeing this take place. You know, Jesus at the first rumblings in the distance could have left the mountain and gone down and approached them. But he waits. He waits till this point of like almost utter desperation. We're actually told in another place that they're at the halfway point. You know, if the storm had kicked up early, you know, you might have been inclined, well, guys, we need to get off this body of water. We're only at mile one. Let's turn and head back. But you're in the very middle of the sea, and the storm kicks up. I mean, it, you're just as close to your destination as you were when, from where you, you came from. And so, you know, and Jesus said, go to the other side. So you don't want Jesus to get to the other side, and you're not there. Sorry, Jesus. Uh, we missed that. So, I mean, they are at... Where do we go? What do we do? We have to just plow forward. But then Jesus, he goes to them. And then, I mean, don't miss just kind of the um, unbelievable nature of those last four words. He goes to them, that's great, walking on the sea. How many of you have walked on the sea? I mean, this is astounding. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, it, it doesn't say they were excited. They were troubled. Literally, they're terrified. They're disturbed. Why? Because their conclusion, it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. So again, you leave the location. You're going across. If you got the sail hoisted, you're looking ahead. You're not looking behind. You're looking ahead. But, the wind's contrary, so that you have to drop the sail. Meaning that they're rowing, so they're facing the opposite direction that, that they've come from. You know, they're rowing with their back to the direction they're heading. So they're looking back from whence they came, back from where they began. And, and imagine being one of these men. 
And again, you're exhausted. It's the fourth watch. It's between three and six. You're tired anyway. It's the middle of the night. You're exhausted. And, and, and you kind of, you get a glimpse, maybe through the lightning, of something strange. Again, approaching you, almost as though it's chasing you. You know, the first glimpse, I can see Peter looking out, like, rubbing his eyes. Like, am I, am I just dreaming something here? God, hey, did you see that? And then the, the next crash of lightning, somebody else gets a glimpse. That, that, can't, that's, that can't be. And then as Jesus gets closer and closer, their initial reaction isn't this is Jesus. You know, because Jesus hasn't walked on water at this point. This is a whole new thing. It's not the, the obvious conclusion, oh, yeah, that's got to be Jesus walking on the water because, you know, that's what he does all the time. Their conclusion is this is a ghost. No doubt superstitions and legends and stories of Davy Jones' locker, you know. These are seamen and all kinds of different legends and whatnot. And they get convinced, they're troubled because they think there's a ghost, not just a ghost out on the water, but a ghost approaching them. So they're freaked out. They're crying out for fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. You know, the first part of this that I find to be amazing, and it might be a detail you haven't really thought about. But have you ever been in, in a good storm? I mean, where the rain is coming down, and again, we're told the wind was roaring. It was howling. It is really hard to communicate. You know, especially if you're on a body, I mean, I mean, you got to yell instructions. Like the very fact that in the middle of the storm, when the wind is howling, that Jesus could speak and they could hear. Again, you know, sometimes I, I was listening to one Bible teacher that, you know, you'll, you'll get into these, well, well Jesus taught the, the, the 5,000 5, or the Sermon on the Mount. He taught big multitudes, but he was always there at the water's edge. And he used the natural acoustics to amplify his voice. Jesus doesn't need any of that. Like he's God. He can speak in a still small voice and you will hear it if he intends for you to hear it. Like he doesn't need the natural acoustics of something. Here we have Jesus walking on the water in the midst of the storm. And he's able to speak to them and they hear him clearly. They're freaking out. This is a ghost. And Jesus is like, chill. It is I. Do not be afraid. Guys, guys, it's just me. This phrase, again, doesn't translate all that well. From Greek into English, it is I. It is ego in the Greek. It is I is a poor translation. A, a more accurate translation would be I am. And again, keep in mind the context of everything that's been going on. Jesus, just before, while they're wanting to make him king, he feeds them bread from heaven, sending them back to like this famous moment during the Exodus where he feeds the manna from heaven bread. The point is, is you guys want to make me king, you don't realize that I've come to do something different. I'm the son of God. It wasn't in John, he says, in response to the miracle, he says, it wasn't that Moses fed you in the wilderness, it was your father in heaven that fed you in the wilderness. 
And if you would get it, you got to realize that what I'm offering is, is living bread, something that will satisfy internally. Then he declares himself to be the bread of life. So we've had this moment where Jesus is, you know, he does what God did in the Old Testament. He does it to them by feeding them. And now here in the midst of the sea, they're in this storm. They're afraid. They're disoriented. They don't know up from down, right to left. They don't know which direction. They're, I mean, they're just trying their best to stay afloat. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in such a situation? Yeah, as far as the, the literature angle of the Bible goes, and I'm a literalist, don't get me wrong, but there is a, a kind of a brilliance to the way that the Bible employs images, images that we find uh, other authors in ancient literature employing. It's not a unique thing to the Bible, but, but storms are often an analogy for things that we face in life, trials, tough seasons, things that arise unexpectedly. It's been said regarding the storms of life, you're either leaving one, you're in one, or you're facing one. And most of the time when, you're, when life is really good, hunker down. <laughs> because there's likely a storm on the horizon. And so when we, we read a story like this, there is a, an analogy that goes much deeper than just the, the literalness of what's taking place. There is something for each of us, not just in navigating storms per se, but life circumstance, difficulties, trials. They come up unexpected, and they do. They disorient us, don't they? And yet it's in the midst of this storm that the first thing that was important is that Jesus spoke and they heard. And then what does he declare? What does he remind them of? What does he emphasize about himself? It wasn't that he's walking on water. It's who he is. It is I. I am. Moses in Exodus 3, the burning bush, gets his commands to go to the children of Israel to lead them out of the land of Egypt. And he asks, who should I say sent me? And Famously, God said, you tell them, I am who I am. The great I am. That eternal nature of God. Which is why in, in John's gospel, we have this emphasis of, we call them the I am statements. But they are I am statements. They are all rooted in Jesus' divinity. Jesus being the great I am. So he's walking on the water. They think he's a ghost. They're freaking out. You got the wind, you got all this, and now we need a ghostbuster. You know, I mean, th this, we're going from bad to worse. It's not just the storm. Now we get ghosts coming out of the waves. And Jesus is like, be of good cheer. Ch cheer up. I'm here. <laughs> I am. God's arrived. No worries. Do not be afraid. Literally, fear not. It's a directive. And Peter answered Jesus and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. There's a few things about this we got to talk about. First, again, the translations, Greek is a beautiful language, Koine Greek, ancient Greek in particular. English, hmm, not so much. Translations are odd. The way that the, the vernacular here presents, if 
implies a measure of doubt or skepticism is the way that we would read it in the English. That Peter's like, if you're really Jesus, as if he couldn't tell that that was Jesus. It should be better translated, since you are. This is a, a declaration of affirmation. This is, okay, okay, that I see you're Jesus. You're not a ghost. Don't quite know the walking on water thing. We'll get to that in a moment. But uh, yeah, okay, cool. Jesus, I'm glad you're here. And then, he, and then he asks, command me to come to you on the water. Now, the first bit of intuition that Peter has is that whatever happens next could only happen if Jesus commanded him to do it. So you gotta give him props for that. It's not like, hey Jesus, I'm getting out of the boat, I'm gonna walk on over to you. Bad move. But if you command me to come onto the water, then your commands, as I've learned, come with power. So if you command me to do what is presumably impossible, if you're the one issuing the command, then I know the power will be there for me to do it. So I'd like to get out of the boat, I'd like to walk with you. This looks fun. Uh, but I'm not going to do anything unless you command me to do it. Now, where did Peter get the idea of walking on the water? To me, if you're, if you're in this situation, you're rowing, the storm, all that, keep in mind, this is storm number two for these men. Now, storm number one. Storm number one, again, same body of water, Sea of Galilee, same type of storm. They're in the middle. It's a whole thing. They think they're going to die. The boat's filling with water. Good indication they have a problem. Boats are better without the water in them. So when the boat's filling with water, you have cause for concern. But where is Jesus? Now, Jesus is not out of the boat. He's not on the other side of the shore. He's in the hole sleeping. And so they come to him, and they wake him up. Jesus, are you not concerned that we're perishing? And Jesus before he even talks to them, rebukes the wind and the waves, they cease, and he's like, now what's going on? I couldn't hear you. You know, so there's this great moment. They've already been in a storm. Jesus was with them in the boat, indicating like, I have the power over the storm. Storms come, they're inevitable, they're gonna happen. You want me with you. You wanna hear my voice, you wanna respond to my voice. I can help you through the storm. So Peter's standing here, again, been through storm one, and he's making an evaluation. Now, I would have been like, Jesus, it'd be great for you to get in the boat. But we're told in Mark's gospel that it wasn't this that Jesus was walking on the water. We're told by Mark that he was walking across the water as if he were going to pass them. So as you're playing the scene out in your mind, you know, they're looking back and it's like, it's a ghost. And they're watching and they're freaking out. And the ghost is like walking by the boat. And Jesus turns like, don't, don't freak out. It is I. But he's like, keep going. He's like, I told you I'd meet you on the other side. Didn't tell you I'd get there first. So Jesus is making his way across the water. And Peter's like, whoa, Lord. Command me to get out of the boat and walk on the water with you. Because Peter has made a, a, a smart evaluation. I'm in a storm. This isn't good. Where's the better place for me to be in the storm? In the boat or on the water? Now, logically, the boat. But storm one has taught him that it's not about the water or the boat. It's about being with Jesus. In the storm, that that's the most the safest place to be in a storm is with Jesus, even if that means you get out of the boat and walk on the water. So Peter's like, I, command me to walk with you because 
I learned the lesson of the first storm. I want to be with you. It's safer with you on the water than in this boat if you're not in it. You know, people will, will spend these type of, stay in the boat. No. Maybe you need to jump out of the boat if Jesus isn't in it. Or get out of whatever safe com- safeguards you have or whatever comforts you're holding on to. You want to be with Jesus if you're in a storm. And Peter has that that intuition, and he asked this crazy question. He's like, well, clearly he's passing us, and I'm not going to stay with you knuckleheads. I'm going with him, but you got to command me to come with you. Amazing. So Jesus says to him, come. (laughs) And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Only two men have ever walked on water. Jesus and Peter. Peter saw the wind, the waves, the storm, the rain. He's disoriented. He's tired. He's kind of over the storm. He's like, there's Jesus. I'd rather be with him than here. Can I come with you? Yeah, get on. Come on. So Peter crawls down the hatch, you know, walks the plank, so to speak. Imagine being the other disciples, you know. I should have asked him, you know. And then Peter, what, what hat could it have, what was it like for him to put the foot, foot down? Like, wait a second. You know, and to, 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 make, to put the next one. What was it like the moment he let go of the boat? You know, we often get into our mind because we're told, but when Peter saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. We get the idea that Peter kind of like immediately regretted his decision. You're like, he gets out of the boat, he gets onto the water. There's the first thought, this is cool, immediately followed by the wind, the waves, everything else, and he's like, he starts to sink. I don't see that anymore in the way that I read this passage. Because we're told that he gets out of the boat and he's walking. He's walking on the water to go to Jesus. Now, if you started to sink immediately after getting out of the boat, what are you going to do very quickly? Get back in the boat. So Peter has to be far enough away from the boat at this point where he's looking at Jesus and the boat and he's like, I can't get back to the boat. And then he begins to sink. It's not that he sunk. Did his toes disappear first? I don't know about you, but when, when you sink in a body of water, it's pretty quick. <laughs> it's not a slow sinking. You know, if, if you have, if you have a, a, a toddler, it's like in a split second, they can go from dry land to the bottom. You know, as they're walking along the edge, and then all of a sudden, well, where did Mabel go? I mean, it's not like they, they slowly, it's not a beginning to sink. He, he gets to his knees. You know the other thing that I find amazing about, about Peter's actions here? So his name is Cephas to start with, which is pebble. And then Jesus changes his name to Peter, which is rock. 
If Jesus gave you the name rock, you think walking on water is a good idea? You know, rocks don't walk on water. And yet here's Peter. He sees Jesus. Being with Jesus is better than being in the boat. I'm not going to do this without you commanding it because something would have to happen. Jesus says, come. He gets out. He's walking. And he's got his eyes on Jesus. He's focused on Jesus. Everything is right. But then we're told very specifically, he's beginning to sink. Why? He saw that the wind was boisterous and he became afraid. What happened? The implications of the text is that as long as Peter had his eyes on Jesus, yes, the storm was still there. But he had his eyes on Jesus. He was walking, and he would follow Jesus to the other side. But he got his eyes off of Jesus. He started to look around. He started to, again, recognize the power of the storm, the obstacles in front of him. And he becomes afraid. He's, he's afraid, but he's walking on the water. But he got his eyes off of Jesus. And then he prays a three-worded prayer. You know, one of the things that, that I have a, kind of a problem with, with a lot of Christians, Christian, Christianese, is like we, we've gotten trapped into thinking that a prayer has to be long to be effective. Or that it has to include quite weighty theological terms and ideas and substances. And it's more effective if we can include a, a, a doth or a thou. The more old English we can get, the more effective, you know, because, I mean, God is old English. We've got to speak his language. Peter is in desperation. He doesn't care about theology. He doesn't care about big words. Three words, Lord. Acknowledging who Jesus is, save me. Effective. Effective because he meant it. Because he was sinking. And then we're told immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him. And said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? The phrase here, O you of little faith. I'm not Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar. I don't pretend to be one. It's one of the reasons that I really enjoy David Guzik's commentary, because he's also not a Greek scholar, but he reads a lot of Greek scholars. So what's great is I don't even have to, I don't have to read Greek or, or read Greek scholars. I'll just read David Guzik reading Greek scholars, and that works for me. So I won't quote the Greek scholar I read. I'll quote David Guzik quoting the Greek scholar that he read, just to be fair. But this Greek scholar makes the point that David Guzik reiterated that I'm now sharing, that this phrase, O ye of little faith, is a noun. It's one word, and it's a noun. Jesus literally called him in the moment, little faith, little faither. It was a title. It wasn't a condemnation. Because again, Jesus, a little faith, it's not the, 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 it's not the, the, the amount of faith, it's the object of faith that matters. Little faith and of great God will be a great faith. Little one, why did you doubt? Why did you get distracted? Why did you get your eyes off of me? You were walking on the water. Now he says this to him, mind you, after he's caught him. 
If the roles were reversed, if Jesus came over to Peter and says, little faither, why did you doubt? As he's still sinking, that land's a little different. But Jesus has first saved him, responded to his prayer, has worked in his life, and he's like, hey, this was working. Why did you doubt? Why did you get distracted? And then we're told that they get into the boat. So Jesus basically helps Peter back to the boat. They both get in the boat. The wind ceased. John tells us that in conjuncture with the wind ceasing, we have maybe one of a few examples of what I would just call a horizontal rapture. Because they're in the middle of the lake, and immediately not only do the wind and the waves cease, but they are on dry land. Boom, they roll up on the shore. Like, in a split second, they travel three and a half miles on clear glass. That's pretty cool. Which would explain why those who were in the boat came and worshipped him. And what was their conclusion? And this is the whole point of the exercise. Truly, you are the Son of God. In fact, Mark's account of this story, again, given to us from the perspective of Peter, will tell us that this whole thing happened, note, because they didn't understand the lesson of the loaves and fishes. That's what Peter's observation is. That we were put into this boat, sent across the sea for all of this to happen, to be in the storm, for Jesus to walk by, so that we would see what he wanted us to see with the feeding of the 5,000. It wasn't bread for the belly, it's that he's God. Because that's their conclusion now. Truly, you are the Son of God. Storms. You know, you don't get to pick and choose your storms. They happen. The, 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 the important point about storms within the context of, of the Christian perspective is that everyone faces them. Whether you believe in God or not, you still face storms. Everyone does. I ask permission to brag about my wife. Because we faced a storm this year. I say we faced a storm. I faced a storm. I got sick. I got COVID. I, I, I was miserable for a few days and then slept for two months. Oblivious to everything else going around me. The doctors, the nurses, the, the statements, the diagnoses. I, I was gone for it all. And I woke up disoriented, a little confused as to what all happened. But, you know, focused on moving forward and getting better. The real storm was the one that my wife endured. To not only get sick at the same time as me, to not only have to make the very difficult decision to call 911, to not only hop in the van to head to the hospital, to be separated from me, to then have to go to the hospital herself the next morning because she's sick as a dog with COVID as well, to trying to deal with her own sickness, three little kids, and getting news constantly every day that your husband is, is on a very fast track, the wrong direction. To get diagnosis after diagnosis of things just progressively getting worse and everything they're trying is not working. You want to talk about, I slept through a storm. My wife lived a storm. And it was a constant thing for her that the doctors would come in 
and they would say, this is what's going on, and we don't know why this is happening, and this is, this is what the prognosis is, and, and it to hit her, and she have to grapple with that, and, and, and then have to relay the information to my parents and family, and then figure out what do I share with the kids or not, but for her to constantly come back after every moment, but God. That was her phrase, but God. And those of you that have been around already know this part of the story. And then to get news, February 1st, for the doctor to come in and say, we just did another CAT scan. He's off of all the sedation medicine. He's not waking up from his coma. And we're downgrading him from bad to really bad. That's my layman's term. To the point that you should really probably start getting the affairs in order. And she gets a diagnosis from medical professionals that this is the situation. And she's thinking, how do I let his parents know? How am I going to break the news to the kids? Where are the life insurance policies? Like, how is that going to work? I'm going to now be a, a, single, a, a single mom with three kids. She's going through all of these thoughts and emotions. And the storm is whipping. And it's howling. And she's disoriented. And she doesn't know what to do about it. And she's freaking out. And she's afraid. She's seeing ghosts. And yet she kept coming back and kept coming back, but Jesus. You see, in the midst of the storm, my wife walked on water for one reason. She said, Jesus, I need to get out of this boat. I need to be with you. You're not in the boat. You're out there. I'm going to be with you. And she kept her eyes on Jesus. And no matter what the wind was howling, it kept getting checked with, but God. You see, the, the lesson of a storm is be with Jesus but keep your eyes on Jesus. No matter what's happening, keep your eyes on Jesus. And that's easier said than done. I get it. So this has been Jessica's story. Any opportunities I've had to share, it's like you, you've invited the wrong person. <laughs> you know? But I got a taste of it. Some of you know this. Some of you don't. If I'm being repetitive, I apologize. As you guys know, my, my biggest issue has been my arms and what's causing this. I'm doing a lot of therapy, try to gain strength, and I've got wrist drop. And my therapist was like, you need to see a neurologist. I said, okay. So I set an appointment with a neurologist. I went, walked in, sat down with the neurologist. I told him my story. He's like, you shouldn't be here. I was like, I know, but I am. So what's causing all of this? And so he pokes, he prods, he does his thing. And he says, Zach, I'm 100% sure that you have what's called ICU neuropathy or critical illness polyneuropathy. I'm pretty convinced of it. And again, you run down the whole symptoms, you know, from down to even did like the medication, kidney failure, et cetera. I checked all the boxes. And he said, I'm not going to shortchange you here. Um, this is a terrible prognosis. Uh, there was nothing that anyone could have done to prevent it. You were in the ICU for 10 weeks. This stuff just kind of happens. But you're, you're looking at years of recovery, not months. And so I get home that night, and I'm bawling my eyes out, and Jessica and I are having a moment. And because in my mind, it's like I'm not going to be able to play catch with my kids till they're teenagers. And then I go into the office on Thursday, start prepping for Sunday. It was Matthew 12. And I sit down. I had not even read ahead. And I open my Bible, Matthew 12. I hit a Bible study. I start listening, and it's Jesus healing the man with the withered hand. I brought this up when I was teaching on that particular passage. I've never been more envious of one guy in the Bible because he had one good hand. and I got two pool noodles. And I'm sitting there in my office crying, saying, this is a terrible diagnosis. I want you to heal me. But you're not healing me. I got a taste of what Jessica had experienced for months. 
Because then the Lord was like, are you going to trust me? Are you going to keep your eyes on me? You want a little taste of your wife's story. Will you keep your eyes on me and trust? <sighs> Standing on holy ground, you know? Kick the sandals off and say, Jesus, yes. And you take as long as you need to, you know? This is your will for me, this is your will for me. So I go, I had to have two tests done to confirm the diagnosis. So I went to the neurologist on Tuesday. I preached Sunday about the man with the withered hand. The following Thursday, I go to the hospital to have a neural connectivity test done and an EMG test done. Uh, both are brutal. Don't ever do them if you can avoid it. And as this is happening, the neurologist performing this, the test is talking to the sidekick who's entering the information in the computer, and they're having a giggle fest. Not very professional. And so at one point, I'm kind of looking over. I was like, hey, you're going to fill this guy in on the joke? And the guy was like, let me finish. So they wrap it up, and he looks at me, and he says, and I'm not going to use any names because I don't want to get anyone in trouble. He's like, I can't tell you what I'm about to tell you because that's supposed to be your neurologist, but I'm sure that you've, I, you've Googled ICU neuropathy, right? And I was like, yes, sir, I have. He goes, and you know that that's terrible. I said, yes, sir, I do. He goes, you don't have any neuropathy at all. He goes, I have no idea why you were given this diagnosis because it is very clear from all of the evidence that it's the damage done to your radial nerve and you'll be fine by the end of the year, maybe the first two months of next year. You'll be months, not years. So I go back to the neurologist and he comes in and he says, have you read the report? I said, yeah, I read the report. He says, so what are your conclusions? I said, well, you were dead wrong, doc. Do you have a degree? And he goes, I was not wrong. I said, oh, okay. Because I was not wrong. I refuse to say that I misdiagnosed him. He said, I I've been doing this a long time. You had, on Tuesday, when I saw you, all of the textbook evidence and markers of ICU neuropathy. Now, I will admit that the following Thursday, when you got these tests done, all of the neuropathy was gone. So I'm not going to argue with the tests. They're right. This is what you're now dealing with. But I was not wrong on Tuesday. I was like, well, I don't know about that. He said, I don't know what happened between Tuesday and Thursday. You had neuropathy, but you don't. I said, well, I'll tell you what happened, doc. He said, I opened up Matthew chapter 12, and I looked at Jesus healing the man with the withered hand, and I got my eyes off my stupid circumstances and all the depression that was settling in because of it, and I said, I'm going to do what my wife has done, and I'm going to declare but God. Yeah? I don't know because... <laughs> The guy goes, he goes, I, I gave a little, I preached a little bit. And he goes, well, I'm a Jew. I don't know about all that. <laughs> I said, well, you come up with a better explanation, and we'll go with that one. I'm telling you, if you're in a storm, I know it's hard. I know it's hard. With or without Jesus, you will be in storms. But if you keep your eyes on Jesus, 
He won't give you escape from storms. But he will give you the strength to get through them to the other side. And if Jesus is in the boat, stay in the boat. But if Jesus has gotten out of the boat and he's walking across the water, then the safest place to be is walking across the water with Jesus. But you got to keep your eyes on him. And so I know some of you right now, you're going through it. Whether it's this financial crisis that we're kind of in the, the beginning phases of feeling and you're looking at your 401k, you wanted to retire, or you've got a child that's wayward, or whatever that storm is, we all have them. The key is hear his word. I am here. And fix your gaze upon him no matter what. And where he goes, you follow. Amen? So, Father, Lord, thank you for your...